Do not be afraid, my little flock, for it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I'll submit to you, these are the most pastoral, comforting words found throughout the pages of the Bible. Jesus has a tone of a, of a kind and loving mother speaking to her children in the midst of a frightening moment. Don't be afraid, my little ones, my children, my friends. It is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, no matter how fear-filled you may be in this very moment, don't be afraid. God is here to give you God's good pleasure and the very kingdom itself. The way that Luke wrote these words in his original Greek gospel implies that God's love, God's grace, that good pleasure has been given, is being given, and will be given on into eternity. It is a promise that the very God who created the universe is still at work creating something new in your life and mine, whether we're three or 93 years old or somewhere in between. God's never, ever done working with us. It's a beautiful promise that the worst thing that happens in your life will never be the last thing. A friend of mine in ministry is one who says that all the time. It's a reminder of the great promise of Easter, of the goodness of the resurrection. Even your death is not the last thing. Jesus wants his little flock, us, to not see the world through foggy-eyed vision of fear. Fear, fear clouds our vision. It clouds our thinking. It, it, in fact, can even paralyze us and keep us from acting. Rather, Jesus wants us to see each other and the world through the beauty of the wide open eyes of God's good grace. Now, I know it's easier said than done. Every preacher who's ever preached a sermon knows that it's a lot easier to preach it than it is to live it. A few days ago, I had a conversation with a friend I was catching up with for the first time in, in several years. We got to talking about this and that and other thing, and at some point he said, I recall you were working on a book. Did you ever get that book published? I sheepishly said, no. He said, well, have you, are you still working on it? Yes. Well, how, how long have you been working on it? Ten years. Well, why haven't you submitted it to a publisher yet? I mean, it's mostly done, right? Why haven't you submitted it? Fear of rejection. I said, and then his face kind of scrunched up, and he almost looked like he was mad at me, and, and he said, fear of rejection, you're the guy who preaches the unending grace of God, the overwhelming universal love of God, and that we are called to leave fear behind. Isn't that what you preach? I said, don't quote me to me. <laughs> I suspect some of you know or have a similar story in your own life. Sometimes we let fear cloud everything we do. There's that beautiful voice of Jesus. Don't be afraid, my little flock. This is the essence of the gospel, to leave fear behind, to let God's good pleasure, God's grace, and God's love define everything we say and do. But sometimes we let that fear get in the way. We can't seem to see the grace that is, is all around us one of my favorite theologians is a man named Robert Capon. 
Professor Capon was interviewed a few years before his death and was asked, what word do you have for the church? What word of encouragement do you have for the church, especially those who, who are, are, are left behind, who are, are not surrounded by grace? His answer was stunning. He said to this interviewer, we are surrounded by grace. It's us that lack. There is no lack of grace. Grace is everywhere. If we would but open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, we'd find that it is all about us and around us. But instead we refuse and we look aside, we look away. We, define, we defend ourselves, we define others in simplistic and, and foolish ways. To, to really make this point, I, I've got another quote for you from Professor Capon. It's from his book, Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment. Let's put it up on the screen so you can see it. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly even give it away because it works only for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. Now, guys in the back, let's leave that up for just a moment. Leave it there so we can face this truth. When he says losers, he doesn't mean we're losers. He doesn't mean we're losers and we have to grovel and, and ask for forgiveness. No, no, no. What he's saying is he's challenging what is a typical thing in our way of thinking, especially in the American church, that we don't want to pay attention to grace because we don't want to admit our need for it. We want to work hard to prove ourselves, to, to make sure that we are acceptable and everybody loves us and likes us. And I want to prove myself to you and you want to prove yourself to me and our families and our friends and our neighbors. And it's a, it's a zero-sum game. It gets us nowhere when we're afraid to admit that we are in need of grace, when we're afraid to give grace and extend it to others, it feels like in this culture that we're losers. When in reality, as Jesus said, my little flock, don't be afraid. Grace has been there, is there, and will be there forever. That is the essence of the gospel. That is the point that Jesus came to teach. That is the singular thing that Jesus wanted us to take away from his years of teaching and his work with his disciples and the earliest days of the church. To let love define us, to let love be at the center. Now I know that sounds like a preacher's cliche or that sounds like kind of a simplistic understanding, but see it this way. Love is at the center of everything we do in the church. That's what we're called to do. We're called to put love at the center and then everything from there spins out. It can be complex on how we respond in love to the world and the issues and the, the problems that are around and about us. Some of the great work that Tim Van Sant is doing is going to be difficult and hard at times, but at the center of everything he does and the rest of what we do in our ministries here will be love. I read a pastor this week who was commenting on the passage that we read a moment ago and she says exactly that. These words of Jesus are the essence of the gospel. Do not be afraid. It's God's good pleasure to share these with you. Do not be afraid. But she wonders. She wonders if the American church especially has taken love and grace, pushed it to the side, and placed instead the essence of the church on what we would call busyness. At busyness. We push grace aside and the church gets caught up in getting busier and busier and busier, trying to prove ourselves to our, our, prove ourselves to our neighbors and those we might invite to be a part of us. Look at all the things we have. Look at this long list over here. Churches all over America are caught up in busyness. 
long lists, long, excruciatingly long days that don't end until 9, 10 o'clock at night sometimes, Sunday through Saturday, week after week, month after month. She wonders out loud, what if we've put busyness at the center of our essence? That might sound harsh, but I'll tell you, I've heard of this busyness being overwhelming for many of our families. You know, I was first ordained formally into the life of the church and ministry in 1988. I actually got my first paycheck from a church the summer after my freshman year of college when I worked as a college summer intern at First Christian Church in San Francisco. That was in 1977. I shared that story with Shelley Sagraves. She's one of our administrators, a great member of our team. And she said, oh, really? That's the year I was born. <laughs> I said, oh, really? Let's talk about something else. <laughs> but honestly, since the beginning of my ordained ministry, especially in working with youth and families, I have heard hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of parents say to me, we're overwhelmed with busyness. This is not a new phenomenon. It goes back to at least 1988. We're overwhelmed with busyness. I have to rush home to get my child to this, to this, and the other thing. Our kids' days are packed from early in the morning till late at night. We don't have, seem to ever have a day off, a day to just take a breath and sit back and relax. We're just overwhelmed. I, I, and when I became a parent, I said the same things. Julie and I used to sit up late on Sunday nights coordinating our calendars. You've got Nate, I've got Stephen, I'll go to the, to the basketball game. You've got the karate thing and just this constant barrage of stuff. We were overwhelmed with busyness. We asked ourselves, I've asked people as a pastor, what could you let go of? What could you let go of? How could you lessen the busyness load on your family, on you, on your children? And do you know what their response was? Are you kidding? We've got to keep up. We've got to do everything we possibly can. We've got to keep up with everyone else. Where does that answer come from? Fear. It comes from fear of somehow I'm not measuring up to them, to those, and to the others. Fear paralyzes. Fear gets in the way of clear thinking. That's why Jesus is so clear in his teaching. Do not be afraid. The essence of the gospel is there in that invitation to receive God's good pleasure. You know when I learned this? When I was about that tall. I grew up attending, many of you know this, uh, more evangelical style churches. A couple of them you would call, I would call fundamentalist very fundamentalist. My father was a pastor in all those churches, and his theology evolved over time to where he had to leave those churches behind and serve churches more like first community. But those churches did one thing right, even the fundamentalist ones. They did one thing right. When I was this tall, about four years old, I learned a song. We learned a song in Sunday school. Sometimes we sang it in big church. Uh, I used to think a church as being big church, the worship service, and little church for the kids. Sometimes we sang it in both. Do you know the song I'm thinking of? Jesus loves me, this I know. Say it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. 
They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Every sermon I've preached since the very first time I walked into a pulpit has had that simple yet profound song as the foundation for the sermon. Even sermons where I had to challenge the congregation, where I had to, cha- to call on us to go beyond simplistic thinking, to make our way into the world, to take on whatever issues were out there and about them. All of those, even those, especially those, were still founded in that simple little song, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves us, this we know. And from there, we can take on anything. From there, we can face whatever the world throws at us. From there, we know that at the center is love and wherever the Spirit takes us, we'll find the courage we need to go with it. In the text that we heard earlier, there's a shift in Jesus' tone. He's set the foundation. He's built the platform on love and grace. And then a few verses later, it shifts, his voice shifts in tone to a warning. He, he says, get dressed. And it, it, the way we would say this, keep your shirt on. Who knows what's going to happen next, but keep your shirt on. Just be ready. Things could get wild in a minute. Who understands? Who knows for sure? But keep your shirt on. Be ready. Because things might happen. You, you see, in, in, in Jesus' day, and especially 50 years later, when the Gospel of Luke is written, there was a great deal of fear about what the second coming of Jesus might mean, about what the coming of God might mean. People were afraid that it would be a a day of judgment, that they would be judged harshly and some would be welcomed and others would be sent to a terrible place of punishment. In fact, during the time that Luke is writing, there's a group of Christians, many Christians, who are concerned that Jesus had come back and they hadn't been aware. And now he's gone and they're going to eventually die and be left in darkness and not in the presence of God. There are all sorts of fears about judgment and hell and and fiery uh, desolations and and all the rest. What Jesus wanted his disciples to know, wanted the church in Luke's day to know, wants us to understand, no one knows for sure. No one knows. All those people are out there predicting about what the kingdom, uh, the second coming, and Jesus coming again and all that. They forget to read Jesus. Jesus is like, no one knows, I don't know. Just don't worry about it. In the meantime, Keep your shirt on and deal with the world that's in front of you. Take it on. And did you notice this? He even describes what's going to happen when God finally does come, when we finally reach the end of all ends. It's a beautiful metaphor. The master of the house ties a belt around his waist, and the master reverses everything. He serves the slaves a meal, and they're blessed by it. Do you follow the metaphor? Do you see what Jesus is saying? When God finally does come, God will be wearing an apron, most likely the same one that God wore to create the entire universe. And God's gonna invite you and me and everyone else who has ever lived in the history of this world, in this one life that we share, will be invited to this banquet, to this celebration, to this party, to this dinner. God's very self will serve us. And it won't come with judgment. It will come with, it was in the text, a blessing. You see the great promise? We don't need to be in fear of the end. It ends in a blessing, in a marvelous celebration. But that fear, 
it's so hard to get away from. It clouds our vision. It confuses our minds. It makes it difficult for us to see clearly, to think clearly about how to, what to do next. It can leave us just, just stuck, unmovable. Parker Palmer, the, the brilliant writer, who spoke here at First Community a few years ago, tells a story in one of his earlier books about a time he was facing a deep, dark depression. And he decided to, to, to face it by going to one of those outward bound retreats. Do, do you remember those? Those outward bound retreats where you would be challenged physically and, and mentally to take on new tasks and ideas and try new things to, to help you to strengthen your life and, and so forth. The, the retreat was held at a place called Hurricane Island off the coast of Maine. He writes in his book, he should have known that that name was a sign of what he was about to go through. He said the next time he goes to a, uh, an outward bound retreat, he's going to choose one with a name like Pleasant Valley or Happy Fields. It comes to the middle of the week, and his worst fear is before him. Stay with me, guys, on the camera here. He walks up to the edge of a cliff that is 110 feet above solid ground. Some of you might recall when we first opened this sanctuary, I liked preaching from here. I got about 17 emails that first Sunday, and people said, don't stand so close to the edge, it's frightening. That's, that's what Parker Palmer was experiencing, was great fear, standing on that edge, because his instructor said, we're going to tie a little rope around you, and you're going to rappel down. Well, put the rope around, stuck, stood over to the edge, took a step out, and slammed right into the cliff. The, the instructor said, that's not how you do it. You need to plant, <laughs> you need to plant your feet into the, in, into the cliff itself, lean way back, and then take a step. Well, Parker thought that was the dumbest idea he ever, he ever heard. So we took it, he pushed off the cliff and tried to go down a little bit more. And again, he slammed into the cliff. And then Parker said, okay, what were the instructions again? And the instructor said, put your feet into the cliff. Lean back until you're at a right angle. It seems counterintuitive, but Parker, do it. Lean all the way back, and then take a small step, and then another, and then another, and then another, and he does, and it works, and it's working, and he's doing well. He's feeling confident, and then the instructor calls out as he's about halfway down, stop, look beneath your feet. He looks, and there's a giant hole in the face of the cliff. The instructor says, you're going to have to go around it. Parker remains there, frozen, paralyzed in fear. The instructor says nothing for about two or three minutes, and then finally says, Parker, is anything wrong? He says, I don't know where this voice came from, but it came right out of me. It was a high, squeaky-pitched voice that said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and then the instructor said, I have a motto for you. And Parker thought, great, I'm about to die, but she's got a motto for me. Isn't that nice? Here's the motto. If you can't get out of it, get into it. That's what we teach here at Outward Bound. That's why you're here. That's why you have this moment. If you can't get out of it, get into it. Eventually, he finds the courage to move sideways, around, around, and then finally down. 
He says, this is your life. If you can't get out of it, get into it. One of my favorite preachers out there, John Ortberg, likes, likes to say, this is your life. These are your failures. These are your joys. These are the things that you've tried to accomplish. These are your hopes and dreams. Now get into it. Choose life. Choose to be alive. I don't care if you're three or 93. Choose that life that is before you. If you can't get out of it, get into it. If Jesus were here, he'd say amen to all that. That's what it is. That's what it's about. My little children, he would say, don't be afraid. Maybe what we need to do is sing that song more often. Jesus loves me. This I know. Jesus loves us. This we know. Amen.